Hey guys, and welcome to today's episode of Give It The Beans. Um, I'm a little bit starstruck with today's guest. I'll admit he is somewhat a celebrity to me, but I'm sure he is for everyone in the UK bodybuilding scene. Uh, you may have known him for just simply how jacked and tanned he is, but also perhaps and more likely knowing the fact that Mr. John Peters looks up to this guy a lot. Um, and to lastly add, he's got a pretty sick haircut. I saw it about a month ago. It is the one, the only Dr. Scott Stevenson. How are we doing, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for that. Yeah, the starstruck thing. Obviously, I dressed up for the occasion with my cut-off Harley Davidson shirt. <laughs> now, dude, I still remember last month seeing you. Um, I've followed you for quite a while and sort of listening to your podcast and, and know what you do. Um, you certainly are. It's certainly one of those moments where you go, "Oh, wow! He's actually just a he's a real guy." Uh, and yeah. you delivered <laughs> such an amazing um, seminar that day, and we're going to talk about some stuff from that, but. For those that are perhaps listening that are unsure, uh, maybe they've been hiding, hiding under a rock. They don't know who Dr. Scott <laughs> Stevenson is. Could you give us a, a brief hit? I'm, I'm going to say brief, but it'll be a long, a long one on sort of your history within your bodybuilding, your education, your coaching, and, and sort of career within all realms up to date. Yeah, uh, you, my reputation of being long-winded precedes me. So, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I'm really just a guy who started off as just having a natural affinity for lifting weights and a lot of curiosity and was had the right pieces in place in my life to kind of make, um, find the path of kind of following my passion. So I literally started lifting when I was 11. So... Um, we're, I mean, I'm getting up to almost 40 years now of training, wow. literally. Yeah. And um, that was just, I just really loved that. In fact, I liked the weight training more than the sports that I was doing the weight training for. And I went to college. I studied, actually studied physics in German with a math minor. And, and wow. I figured, what the hell am I going to do with that? I go to Germany and teach physics, you know, <laughs> what I'm, what, where that's going to take me. And I said, what do I like? What I really enjoy. And one of those options, the one that, I think probably would make my mom the proudest. Um, the other one was drinking, and the third one was sex. And I figured <laughs> being a professional beer drinker or a gigolo probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't get my mom too happy. So I decided to pursue the personal training thing. And then along the route, I just fell in love with the learning process, ended up getting a PhD so I could teach at a higher level. I've owned a gym. Um, I wanted to be able to sort of address the person as a whole to some degree. So I studied acupuncture and now I've become a licensed acupuncturist which just gives me perspective on things I can't really apply that because of legalities and scope of practice but um, I definitely do when I have friends that get banged up and that sort of thing so but, but it's given me a lot of uh, education outside of the western medicine as well and so now I'm just sort of uh, I've tried to kind of carve out a niche where I can do the best to help the most people and I always say like in um it's facetious but there's some truth to it that I'm a purveyor of bodybuilding brain candy. And, you know, it's not that everything that you're going to find in every 15 seconds of this podcast, some, some nugget that can be directly applied today in the gym, but it's entertaining. And I think it helps people to understand things in a bigger, bigger way. And it's sort of like it's brain candy. Yeah. It's hopefully somewhat nourishing. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. But some of it's just entertaining. I mean, candy is just like they're quote unquote empty calories. So, Hopefully it's not fully empty, but I, uh, a lot of the times it's like people's like, well, that was really cool. I liked what he had to say. I don't know what the fuck it was. I couldn't repeat that, but hopefully, hopefully today we can 
take it slow and create some bits of information that people will will be able to hold on to. Absolutely. And I think um, another big one for me is that you are the first overseas guest on Give It The Beans Scottish podcast. So the first American American guest as well. Um, And I think that what we'll go into, uh, the listeners will get huge value from. So if we were to discuss, you mentioned that you've done a PhD um, and and you've you've looked into a lot of things to do with bodybuilding. Could you give the listeners a bit of a background with that before we get dig into today's episode? Uh, like what a PhD entails and what the so just what the your, your are own of. sort of education within that PhD because you said you did the German and the math, but then you yeah. decided to to put that yeah. in the bin. Yeah, I just I just totally switched gears. I mean, it was one of those things that I absolutely utterly don't regret. Sometimes people get they put in a number of years towards a given path in, in their in a career. Um, and they're like, ah, I just can't, I don't want to like throw all this away. So their choice is to just stay unhappy doing the things they've been doing because they feel like they'd be like losing something. Like there's an obligation to cling to their past behavior, which they don't like. It's really bizarre thing, but it's part of human nature. So, uh, I went to Texas. Actually, I, I started off as sort of a, the story can get long, but I started off in Colorado Springs. The Olympic training center is there. The program was not for me. I ended up going to University of Texas at Austin, which is a very research-oriented program. But they had an, a master's of education, which was allowed you to take classes in sports management and um, health psychology, human behavior, and exercise physiology. So I, I liked that. It was very well-rounded. I just wanted to become the world's greatest personal trainer. That's how sure, I kind yeah. of told people. Um, and I would started personal training people there, and I got certifications. You needed to do that. And then I, uh, one of the professors there saw um, my curiosity and maybe a little twinkle of intellect, and he's like, hey, would you like to come work in my lab? And he put me to work. Actually, I created an animal model of resistance training, sort of copied one from a, previous, um, a previously done study where we could train the plantar flexors, the calves of rats. And I'm an animal lover. I just, like some of those days of having to go in there and, and you know, it's, we were as humane as possible. But every once in a while, you lose a rat. It's just kind of part of the deal, and it's like ugh, yeah. just eating my soul. So I found a way to actually work with uh, firefighters. Someone came, a sort of a, a fellow meathead, wanted to test out some nice. supplements. Nothing illegal, but some ergogenic aids. So we did a, a, a study with firefighters. And then I found a guy named Gary Dudley, who had done one of the most, I think one of the most basic, important, fundamental uh, studies of basic adaptation in terms of really kind of volume or duration of activity and intensity with rats. He took rats, had them run at different speeds for different durations on a treadmill, and then measured the increase in mitochondria in the plantar flexors of those rats. And you see a dose response. So we know that you can, if you want to get really aerobically fit, you can do high intensity intervals. Or you can go out and do like a long, slow duration, like lactate threshold type of thing. And both those can kind of get you the same point. He did this back in 1980. Like he was the first person to really follow up on some of the fundamental information. So I was in, talk about being in awe and and talking about being a regular guy. Like Dudley was no holds barred. He's since passed on now. So, um, he wouldn't care. He doesn't. He wouldn't give a rat's ass. What you know, we would used to go out drinking, like when we were in, which probably isn't a big deal in Scotland, but for you know, to be able to go do that with, they have that sort of relationship with your mentor is is really really cool. Yeah. And he always said, do what I don't care if it's digging ditches, do what you do what you want. And he was putting in 
thousands of hours educating these these uh, doctoral students to go on and you know sort of carry out his legacy in the research world. But he always said that it's like whatever whatever you want to do is what you should do, and he had a miraculous way of looking outside the box, around the box, dismantling the box, taking the pieces of the box out and taking those pieces apart and and seeing things really with, with genius. So I got to sort of watch how his brain worked and learn the research literature because he was very well published, but also think outside of that. And that, that really was something that I think allowed me to kind of take the path that I did. So I was a college professor for a couple of years out in California. And but I wanted to do more, and that's where the acupuncture came. And I wanted to be able to, instead of like just produce research, which you can do, and it, there was no one like, for instance, Brad, Sch Brad Schoenfeld uh, at the time who was producing a lot of research that is really convey being conveyed to the people. There was no social media in 2000. Yeah. There's no way to kind of get that. You would just you you do a study, and it might get seen. You know, if it's a really well well done study, it might get seen a thousand times in the course of um, you know a year or two by people who are downloading it to cite it for their other research. So this, the coffers of all this research from it is just getting loaded into the libraries un, unseen by the guys in the gym who are doing the things that I love to do. So I wanted to find a way to try to connect all of that. So that's why I went and studied acupuncture so that I could um, work with people in that regard. It, it made sense at the university I was, I was at because there was a really large Asian American community there. And it was a potential, uh, actually, a career path for many of the students that were in the classes I was teaching. So then I just decided I got out to Arizona where I was doing that. I decided to go my own route. So then I opened a gym, um, taught there, and have sort of combined, you know, everything from being a gym owner to being a personal trainer for years to the acupuncture training was really, really excellent because it helped me as a coach. There's a lot of things that coaches who haven't had any like really direct experience, and, and people don't know this. There isn't a standard in the fitness world as far as the bodybuilding world as far as coaching, whereby people recognize like this person is actually doing a really good intake. People will ask me questions sometimes, and and really knowing what I know, and I and I got this perspective from being trained as an acupuncturist. Now we're kind of getting out of the bodybuilding world here, sure, hopefully. Yeah. Yep. is, you know, I want to bring this back to where it's meaningful for people and not just about me, is if someone asks a question, I'm going to first probably have to ask 10 or 20 questions to get a really good handle on that person. I will so often see, instances on, even on discussion boards, someone will ask a question like, um, uh, you know, I, I, my, my elbow hurts. And I did it, hurt it doing this. What do you think I should do? And the, the person doesn't have a, a profile picture, so you don't even know what they look like. You, you can't even estimate their experience there. They haven't got a diagnosis. They've, they're, they're really, they're giving you almost nothing that someone who has expertise in injury treatment, a physiotherapist or physical therapist would need, but you will get a dozen answers, like all over the place. Yeah. Um, different, oh, I ha that happened to me, like, we, was it the same thing? Was did you have golfer's elbow or tennis elbow or triceps tendonitis or, yeah. you know, there's a million things it could be. So that perspective helped me a lot as a coach to recognize you really need to um, very, very much personalize and gather really detailed information if you really want to be able to help somebody. Yeah. Um, and I've got that in, now this is going to sound like a plug, but 
I've got actually it's, no, it's not a plug because it's for free. If you go to my website, which we'll talk about, I've got a personal bodybuilding inventory, which is in in my latest book that you can download. It's a PDF file that I created as a fill-in form, which is essentially my intake form that I use, and it it gives people a way to like really do a self-assessment, like what are your goals, and then how are you going to actualize those with specific actions that you can you can really carry out. And everything, you know, from diet to supplements to um, hurdles, uh, trigger foods, those sorts of things. Yeah. So I think it's two, two solid pages, but that can be downloaded, used, printed out, and then um, there's a clear button so you can fill it out again a couple months later and compare what you did previously. So. Yeah. And, and I think that everything you said, I just wanted to back up how you know passionate you are about education, how really sort of well-versed you are on the topic we're going to discuss. And for those of you who don't know, I listened to Scott deliver a seminar in Edinburgh about a month ago, I think it was. Um, and it was all to do with bodybuilding. And, and one of those was drug pharmacology, which we'll go into today. So to kick off today's episode, um, we know here in the bodybuilding scene in the UK that anabolic steroid use is becoming ever so popular but I often feel that it is misunderstood or perhaps the education on those drugs of how they actually build muscle mass is uh, misunderstood so having known that some of the listeners have listened to the previous episodes I'm just going to delve right in and say if we were to think about you know what's going on within the androgen receptor which people are probably thinking oh my god what's that and I'm sure you'll go into detail but could you briefly ex- explain, you know, physiologically, pharmacologically, what's going on in that angiogen receptor to allow this sort of muscle growth? Briefly might be hard. Yeah. It's a pretty complex topic. There's, there's, there's sort of two important um, things to keep in mind. One, this is a theme I know you heard me talk about. There's biological inter-individuality, um, which really pertains to pretty much every aspect of bodybuilding and especially pertains to pharmacology, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So what the body does to the drug when it comes like the half-life, some people don't metabolize drugs very well, and then how the drug acts, brings about its actions for the individual. So if we're talking about the antigen receptor, there's, we can sort of then go two different directions, maybe even three. Um, it's, it becomes pretty complicated, but the standard classical quote-unquote genomic, as it's known, you can use that term to Google things if you want, whereby the androgen receptor would have its actions, is an androgen is a steroid molecule, it's a lipid, it's lipid-soluble, so it can actually sort of, after it's been injected, let's say, or maybe it's something you've actually taken orally, it's in the bloodstream, it can make its way through the lipid membranes and get inside the cell without having to be transported in, it'll just diffuse through and then there are two pieces of an antigen receptor that will come together and bind to that molecule, and it will make its way into the, the nucleus. And there's a number of co-regulators and co-activators there, and that's another huge source of biological individuality, potentially, for people. And then that combination of antigen receptor and co-activators, co-regulators, and the antigen itself will bind at different points in the genes of that individual on their DNA and turn those genes on, basically. One of those genes would be for protein synthesis. Those genes could be for hair growth. Those genes could be for sebum production in the skin. 
genes could be all the all the things we know the the, the wanted effects and the unwanted side effects sure. depending on where in the body which tissue we're talking about and along the way so now so that's sort of the basic main route in there also seems to be some acute effects that people notice especially from orals for instance which suggests and they've they've documented this that there's some sort of a plasma membrane receptor which acts more like kind of like the receptor for a neurotransmitter cool. something you can sense like right off the bat so um, and those those pathways are starting to be elucidated. So this is why, for instance, people we talked about Jordan. He's noted this before. People and powerlifters do this. They will take their orals, which are known to have psychological actions, right before they train yep. to get that aggression. Yep. So that first genomic classical pathway, we're talking like that's a matter of hours and days. That goes in, turns on those genes. It's, it's not acting rapidly enough to, to cause a, a change in your, your mood state, whereas these, these other receptors on the plasma membrane, probably G-protein related, if people know what that means, which can act really rapidly. Those are the ones, that's another way in. Um, and there's actually a third pathway, which is like almost entirely neglected, which is really interesting. So people talk about serum hormone, sex hormone binding globulin. Yep which binds all the sex hormones, androgens, estrogens, et cetera. And there's actually a receptor for the combination of androgen bound to SHBG called the megalin receptor. And that will bring that combination into the cell and bring about effects. So in animal models, like they can knock out that receptor and those animals don't fully um, uh, develop sexually. Okay. So there's something there. This is kind of a big mystery as to what's going on. Sure. In fact, I was just looking. I was I always dig around a little bit, see if I can toss a little little novel nugget. And I found a study that I had looked at previously, but I kind of forgotten about. And this study, they gave super physiological levels of testosterone to older and younger men. So looking at an age thing, but they measured SHBG. So the standard way of thinking of this is that you want to have it's the free androgen not bound to albumin which binds about half of it or shbg that has the action that's the one that can get into the cell or bind to that receptor membrane a membrane receptor and do its do its job that if it's bound to shb it's basically just tied up it's sort of a reservoir of androgen but it's not really biologically active well we know from the megalin receptor uh knockouts for instance those sorts of things that there's something going on there like there is there's some connection and that receptor isn't just that didn't just come to be from it's probably not like sort of a vestigial type of you know evolutionary thing that's just kind of a leftover receptor that really has no action yeah it usually doesn't doesn't persist very long could, could so, i could i interject yeah. to just one yeah. topic there there might be someone sure. listening that kind of goes or, you know, SHGB and albumin, I'm not too sure of those because we were speaking about androgen receptors. So for people that aren't perhaps aware of how testosterone's carried throughout the body, could you kind of give a, in layman's terms, what perhaps, you know, how they are involved um, yeah. for, for someone that's just kind of literally just went, whoa, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> There's the brain candy. Oh yeah. my God, I got a sugar yeah. high. Um, yeah, sure. So and this is good to, Keep it in perspective. The average male produces like between three and ten milligrams of testosterone a day. Most of that on the testes. Women are maybe one tenth to one twentieth of that. So that's not a lot. 
Yeah. We're talking like that's 100 milligrams a week, um, at pretty much at most for, yeah. for the average person. So that's why an HRT dose would be about that. So if you, when someone injects, let's say they inject testosterone in, they, it will stay in that depot, in, that, in, in basically the location where that oil with the, with the testosterone anything in there for a long period of time. That's kind of, it's, been, it's been designed for that purpose. Um, and so you got testosterone, and then you have the enanthate, or you've got propionate, or you've got, like, for instance, sustenon is a blend of four different of those esters. And the longer that tail, propionate is just three carbons, and enanthate, I think, is eight. The longer that tail, it's the larger the quote-unquote anchor holding the testosterone with this esterified fatty acid in that spot. So enanthate will stay there for a while, and that's why it has a longer half-life. Sure. It makes its way out. Eventually, it'll kind of break free, um, kind of as you know, you're, you're, you're exercising. There's blood flow through there. Eventually, it'll make its way out, kind of diffuse away from the injection site, and the liver will, will peel off that enanthate molecule. And actually, that's one point of genetic variability there's at least two different isoforms for that phosphatidylserase 7B enzyme that does that in the liver. Sure. And if you're a lucky person, you can have like 60% um, greater uh, testosterone levels, area under the curve, to be more technical, um, because you've got the right ester for doing that job. Yeah. So, so then that testosterone will make its way through the blood and about somewhere around 1% of it, there's different mazes and kind of estimates, a very small percentage, definitely less than five, is actually free. And the rest of it will be about bound somewhere in a half-to-half -half ratio to the main protein found in your, in your blood called albumin or SHBG. So small percentage is the free testosterone, which people call the bioactive. It's really like that, those it's almost like black and white in most people's minds that only that free testosterone that can do anything. And that's of course in equilibrium with what's bound. So, you know, if for instance, the free testosterone makes its way into cells and it's out of the circulation, then that's basically moving free testosterone out of the blood and more of what is bound to the, to the albumin or the SHBG will then become free. So there's, it's always balanced. It's an equilibrium process. So that's, little bit of chemistry but hopefully kind of makes yeah, sense I, I think that definitely clears up just because i know there'll be some people out listening that are perhaps beginners with physiology and perhaps in bodybuilding and just just for them to hear that from you that will sh surely make it you know very well clear and i think that the advanced listeners probably thinking well you know i i could use something like provideron to bind to shgb to then up my free test so I could get yeah. more out of it, right? Now, someone who's never, who doesn't know what provider is, has just went, whoa, Vaughn, what, what does that mean? So I guess I'm yeah. going to come back down and just say that, you know, there are hundreds of variations of um, steroids out there derived from testosterone. We've got your, your DHT derivatives or your nandrolone derivatives. But again, I think that might sound like a foreign language to some, but even the people that do know would still perhaps think, right, well, you know, how do we differentiate with these sort of compounds and, and what do they sort of do in regards to physiology or how are they different from a, a pharmacological level? So could you perhaps give the listeners an idea of, well, those three three compounds we just named, 
what would be the differences between them from a pharmacological perspective and with all of them is there anything that perhaps we see traits of you know one stronger than the other or maybe water retention with some or other so it's not going to be brief but if you, if yeah. you get my drift that's what I'm, I'm asking well I, I you, you probably remember from the from the lecture I did I, I can even send this as a file if you want to put it up in oh, the video after great. we yeah. recorded yeah because um, yeah, I've modified I've added some things from a particular figure that I found in a review article um and so the, way back when, when steroids were first being developed, and this is, this is actually sort of the same thing that's going on with SARMs now, and so people have paid attention to the SARMs idea, it's really, it's really just an extension of the idea of with steroids, was that you have this basic androgen, your, 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 prime, your number one androgen, testosterone, androstenedione, and androdiol, those are all androgens, they have androgenic effects. We want to take testosterone and find ways to increase the anabolic actions. So testosterone is a steroid molecule, so it's a pretty big molecule, and maybe at this point it would be popping up on the screen. So you've got a number of different carbons there in this large ring molecule, and I should have worn my, um, uh, uh, I have a shirt with the steroid molecule on there from Advices <laughs> Radio. They literally have, lots of people, you'll see that actually, a lot of people use the steroid molecule sort of as a, semi-covert way of saying, yeah, we're all, we're all enhanced here. <laughs> um, so just changing a little bit, the, the, one, of the, one of the things that's bound to one of those carbons um, or the type of binding between the carbons changes the shape of the molecule. So to give it in basic biology uh, terms, it's this lock and key hypothesis that people talk about. So you've got, there you go, right? So you've got the energy receptor, and you've got the various things, the androgens that can bind to it. And in this case, obviously, with, normally with locks and keys, you've got one key that will fit in one lock, and that's the only one that'll unopen it, that will open the lock. But in the case of the androgen receptor, the different androgens that have been modified slightly from testosterone as a base molecule, when they bind, will have different effects. So imagine a magical lock that can give you both androgenic actions to some degree and anabolic actions to some degree. And that's that anabolic to androgenic ratio people talk about. It's the Hirschberger's assay that's been, we talk about, that's in rats. And people are not rat. man is not a rat, as yep. I like to say. Yep. Differences there, but it gives you some idea, it gives you somewhat of a guideline. So it's almost like imagine a key and you put the key in the lock and you turn it and you get a green light sometimes and you get a yellow light sometimes and then you get a, you know, a little picture of a flower sometimes, <laughs> something like that. You get all sorts of things. It actually ends up being that's one piece of the puzzle with how androgens work is when they get to their binding, what happens when that combination makes its way to the nucleus and turns on those genes. So, so we have an antigen that may, that would come in, for instance, and we'll, let's take um, nandrolone. So the 19 nors, the 19 refers to 19 carbon. On the, if you're looking at the, there's a nomenclature, a numbering of those carbons. It's been modified in a certain way, and that would be like trenbolone or nandrolone. Those nandrolone can be aromatized a little bit, trenbolone not so much, meaning aromatized being converted estrogenic action, est estrogenic molecules. So nandrolone is an interesting one because um, when testosterone makes its way, I'll get back to nandrolone in a second, testosterone makes its way 
into, let's say, the prostate, there is an enzyme there that will convert it to dihydrotestosterone. Basically, it just adds a couple hydrogens, as the name implies. And it's almost like that key gets becomes a different shaped key, and when it gets to the androgen receptor, you get a very androgenic action yep. in the prostate. You can get benign prostatic hypertrophy. They will, for instance, the people who have prostate cancer, they will sometimes they do this with my dad way back when they'll they will basically um, castrate them chemically so they don't produce any testosterone. So there's no dihydrotestosterone. Yep. So what's interesting though, so the dihydrotestosterone is more androgenic. Um, but if you go, if you're in, let's say skeletal muscle, and let's say you just present skeletal muscle to DHT and the DHT gets into the cytosol and it's going to bind to that antigen receptor, there are enzymes in the cytosol, which will break the DHT down in skeletal muscle. There'll be almost no binding there. Right. Yeah. As That's it turns out in intact cells. Yeah. Now, if you do an assay and, you, and, and they look, well, how does DHT bind to the antigen receptor? When there's no enzymes, there's no cell, it's just DHT and the antigen receptor, you get a different answer. Okay. That's because that's a different that's a different experimental setup. And that's confusing, right? Yeah. It, it, it's quite confusing because um, for instance, nandrolone is known as being not very androgenic. Right? So in the tissues we're worried about, like the scalp and the prostate, for instance, where those androgenic side effects or even in the skin would be a problem. Nandrolone actually binds the antigen receptor more tightly than dihydronandrolone. So nandrolone actually, in and of itself, if it could do, if it could make its way in into the into the antigen receptor in those tissues, would be very androgenic. But nandrolone, just like testosterone, becomes the dihydro version of itself in those tissues, and that's less androgenic. Yep. So you take testosterone. Uh, five alpha reduce it, it's more androgenic. You take nandrolone, you five alpha reduce it, it's less androgenic. So nandrolone in of itself is not uh, a, a low androgenic molecule, but its actions in the body are because of the five alpha reductase enzyme changing the molecule. Yeah. Like, oh my God, it's complicated, I, right? I, I, lo I love that you said that because that was the question I posed to you. Um, I, I've had previous guests on here that of course everyone has different opinions on what they they deem as the strategy they'd go down and i've always favored um personally hiring angelone in thinking as a health from a health standpoint now i know that our people are aware that the use of anabolic steroids will detriment be detrimental to health but from my perspective i thought right here's something that when five alpha reductase reduces it it becomes significantly weaker in those tissues such as your prostate that I don't want but it is also pretty anabolic I'm going to run that higher than I would do say my test but then someone else might go fuck that no way I would always run higher tests but when I had said it to a previous guest or someone I was speaking to they'd said higher tests and I was like I'm going to ask someone that perhaps has a a good clue about it and what their opinion was and when, when I said that you were like yep that makes sense and literally word for word I think maybe the listeners might hear that I'm speaking a bit slower but I remember in the seminar I said it at like 100 miles an hour and you were like um could you could you say that again yeah. <laughs> so I just I love that you that you touched on that was that was amazing um 
No. And, and there, there's more. There's an interesting thing that I, I would like to follow up on yeah, that sure. too, because for some, some people, well, there's several things. One, um, I think he made this known. I'm sure he did because I saw him post about it. But Jordan, for instance, ran an experiment where he was just using, I think, he was nandrolone phenylpropionate, so not a long acting. So he could, if if that's better to use that sh- a shorter ester like that one in case you get into a bad spot, yeah. and then 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 you don't have something lingering around because it's a longer ester and a long half life. And he was finding very high levels, very high sex drive, which is not what nandrolone is known for. Yeah, he was he was he was getting those androgenic effects. My guess, this is a total total guess, because he was I think he was maybe a thousand milligrams, something like that. It was a high, higher amount than what people typically would use is when the, when the nandrolone comes in, it's five alpha reduced, that enzyme has a limit. It can only, only do that to some degree. So my guess is that he had a, an accumulation of nandrolone um, in a way that, that made that molecule uh, sort of build up in excess because the five alpha reductase enzyme wasn't able to able to convert it to dihydronandrolone. So, when you start talking about again, that's why I mentioned this like seven milligrams of testosterone a day. We're talking about you know nandrolone. If it's a thousand milligrams of nandrolone, that's probably like eight hundred and fifty milligrams of nandrolone itself. Yeah. Well, you know, that's you know that's way beyond a, really a physiological level of androgens. So you're you're perturbing the system with tremendous amount of of that androgen in, in a in a super physiological pharmacological way, which you know, it's going to bypass a lot of the normal mechanisms of clearing and balancing the energetic and anabolic actions. Yeah, and so, what you mentioned there um, about Jordan and, and MPP, I I just recently switched. I run a bit of a blast and switched from MPP to Primo because uh, I was running prep. I noticed a significant increase in libido coming off MPP. So to hear that, well, okay, if someone's running a thousand milligrams, it's different from someone running three fifty, right? Right. But, right. but but still to hear that, um, but that kind of leads me on pretty well to my next question because it was based around Primo. For those of you who don't know what Primobolin is, it is a DHT derivative. As far as I'm aware, it cannot be reduced. It cannot be um, by five alpha reductase, sorry, um, and can't be aromatized. Um, mm-hmm. So it's commonly used. It's something that I use and I swear by it, but um, you know, we talk about that it needs to be, or it's talked about, sorry, that it needs to be dosed quite high um, because of its poor ability to bind to the androgen receptor. So that being said, from like a, a physiological standpoint, why do you think perhaps it, perhaps it is commonly used or do you feel that it's perhaps a, a compound that's misunderstood? Well, let me say one thing first before we get, get to that about coming off the NPP and sex drive going up sure. is there's, there's also the thing that, that sometimes people don't think about it's people. I was like, Oh yeah, I've heard that. I forgot about that is that there's cross receptivity of androgens to other receptors like the progesterone receptor yeah. or even the estrogen receptor. Um, which you mentioned proviron there's masteron, yep. which is very similar. And that actually has an anti-estrogenic action because Estrogen, estrogen literally is the aromatization is like five steps, but it's really just the conversion at the 19 carbon of the testosterone that changes testosterone into estrogen. It's not tremendously different molecules. So, so we've got, let's say, nandrolone coming in, 
and it's being converted or not converted, depending on the ability of the enzyme to do that. And it's also potentially binding to the glucocorticoid receptor. Yep. Testosterone does. That's one of the things that, you know, one mechanism whereby steroids probably work. There's some reciprocal inhibition there in terms of being expression of those receptors. So you can block the glucocorticoid receptor, which, which inhibits protein breakdown and those sorts of things. And you can actually activate the progesterone receptor, for instance, with nandrolone or trenbolone. And that may actually stimulate then prolactin release, which is what a lot of guys will see and why they use CABR or something like that yeah. to offset that. So that could be, that's probably my guess as to why nandrolone can have the quote unquote decadic side effect and low yeah. libido action. <laughs> yeah. So you've got, you've literally got a molecule coming in and it's being metabolized into its various metabolites, which can have differential actions on estrogen, glucocorticoid, progesterone. And the antigen receptor, and I didn't even talk about this, at least two areas in that antigen receptor which will change the shape and therefore the binding affinity of the antigen to the receptor. So we've got different antigens coming in, binding differentially to the different receptors, hopefully mainly the antigen receptor. Yep. And then, then we've got the magical lock. So we've got different keys that come in and they can produce different effects on a given magical lock. But everyone's, not everyone's, but the locks that people have are different. Sure. So some people have, and this, is, this has been studied in the context of prostate cancer. Um, uh, African Americans have a higher rate of prostate cancer than Caucasians, or blacks, depending on how they categorize them in the study. Sure. And that has been associated with the, the length of a particular amino acid sequence in the, in the code for that energy receptor, basically that just changes the shape of the energy receptor. Yeah. It changes the affinity to the androgen. So if DHT is having its negative effect on the prostate um, and it's got an androgen receptor that binds it more, more tightly, yeah. you're going to have a stronger action and more negative effects from DHT. Yeah. So then that explains probably why some people are responders. There's actually people who have androgen insensitivity syndrome. Like literally they... They will be XY chromosome. They will be. They will basically appear as women because they don't sexually differentiate. Yeah. Because there's so there's variation. There's actually variable amounts of that. But some will just basically they will live life as a woman, not knowing that genetically they are a man. They just have um, an androgen receptor that doesn't respond to androgens. Yeah. I th so I th yes. Anyway. I yeah. Back to the now primo. Right. Sure. Sure. Um, so. What is, uh, remind me of your question exactly because I got off a little so, tangent there. Primo itself was often used, and I think that you kind of touched on it a little bit. And okay. I, had, I had mentioned about it sort of increasing the androgen to estrogen like, like ratio at the androgen receptor, but it's commonly used and it's often seen as a quite a weak drug and it's had to be dosed quite high. Now, I think it's something that people perhaps poorly understood, and I, I was once wondering if you could perhaps give reasoning behind why. Um, it is has to dose so high, but also why it might be a, a poorly misunderstood um, drug. And I think I'm just going to throw this in there. That, um, my hypothesis was just that we also know that it binds to mineral corticoids as well, like in the kidneys or some steroids mm -hmm. will. Whereas, is it perhaps that Primo... Now, I know that their inter-individuality inter is different, but will Primo less likely... Or, not do that and perhaps that's why that's run higher than say you know something else like no one's going to run nandrolone in a cup but 
because of that effect. So I just wanted you to give a little bit of a brief uh, summary of the pharmacology, physiology behind Prima Ball and why it's used, maybe and perhaps why it's poorly misunderstood. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. Uh, I knew we were gonna, you were going to talk uh, talk about this, so I pulled up one of these interesting studies that uh, uh, on binding affinities, and it lists your DHT, for instance, um, in in rat muscle, and we can just sort of say that applies to human muscle. No binding at all, literally, because that DHT is broken down, and methanolone actually is has a relative to um, methyltrienolone, which is kind of the standard. For binding to the interceptor, it's about 20, 24% of the binding affinity. So it, it does bind strongly in skeletal muscle, but those actions you said about, about not being aromatized are things that people want to have. Now, that's in rat. I haven't seen this data in humans, so I don't know. Things can vary a good bit. And the other thing that's interesting is right, and I, maybe I can send you this too if you want to add it in. I'm looking at some of the others, and this is this is the whole other mystery topic, really, of steroids. Is that if you look at those binding affinity charts and, and those data, you don't the binding affinity for oral steroids is literally nil. It's one, two, three percent of that that you find, which what in those that are typically um, injectables. So it could be the methylation. Like literally, I'm looking here at um, like uh, dianabol methanedione is like 0 0.02. Um, there's and testosterone actually testosterone and, and primo in this particular assay and rat muscle they basically have about the same binding to the androgen receptor in muscle, whereas about 24 percent of the standard they used here in the study. Whereas oxymethylone, so anadrol is basically undistinguishable, nothing. Wow. And we know that we know that anadrol can produce action. So, yeah. how is it doing that? How is this? How is this coming about? Please and tell they've us. done this at least with, uh, um, I think it was uh, Winstrol. Yes, Winstrol and Dianabol. And I mentioned this, I think, in the talk, is you can actually um, set up cellular assays where you've. It's very, it's very, very cool when you basically go through all those steps and you cause those antigen re receptor elements in the genes to be turned on, you can actually couple that with a protein that is luminescent. So it will literally glow. You can make the cells glow. So when an antigen is presented to those, those tissues, they will glow and you can measure the, the phosphorescence of this luciferase enzyme as it's producing this glowing and you can measure that. One of the coolest assays, I just like to kind of talk about, it's like a Christmas tree yeah, you know, type of assay. And so you got no binding, but there's what is what there's action, there's transactivation. You're turning on those genes somehow in some way. So that's an unknown. I haven't seen that studied in Primo. So that my big kind of big question mark is that's one thing that can be be going going on here. You've got the binding of uh, testosterone, basically the equivalent in Primo. Yeah. On the antigen receptor, and maybe there's this non-antigen receptor mediated effect that's at play as well, which explains why we have Winstrol and Dianabol and Anadrol and all these other orals typically that have we know they have anabolic actions. Yeah, because but we don't know why. Like vi visually, when those sort of compounds are put in, you just you see a huge change within the look. 
or the physique in a very short period of time. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear research that says, well, no, this doesn't bind to the receptor, but then it produces all these actions and this different look in the physique that you just go, something's going on. I don't know. I know. I know what it is, yes. but 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 something is. Um, and I guess we may never truly know hundred percent because let's face it, not a lot of bodybuilders are going to want to be studied for years and uh, provide muscle biopsies. I'm sure it's not something I'd I'd want to do. But um, yeah, I just want to pick your brain about that. And if you don't mind, I'm going to pick your brain about a, a topic that is uh, that you discussed in your um, lecture as well, and that is growth hormone. And I feel that's something that um, is often combined with uh, anabolic steroid usage and is either, perhaps as you described it, great for some people and perhaps not so great for others. So in that instance where it perhaps might not be great for others, um, could you explain why it, I mean, does it help build muscle mass? That some people go, oh yeah, growth hormone, I'm going to get huge off that. It's like, you know, the nectar of the gods and other people kind of go, eh, it's all right. So yeah. maybe in that instance, like physiologically, what do we see from it? What does it do, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so this is, it's an interesting thing um, because it has, it's a, it's a deal that as far as I can see, hasn't been really studied as well as it could be. Um, so we'll just put aside the, the, the fact that possibly people are getting bunk growth hormone yeah. or they're getting growth hormone that's been oxidized and, methylate it's been stored improperly or it's like people are now actually running um, assays where they can look at the dimers because growth hormone sometimes will dimerize in the two pieces that are kind of stuck together and those may or may not be active sure. they may be able to bind the growth hormone receptor so there's there are different isoforms of the growth hormone receptor um, and there's uh, or sorry and there's well, actually there's two different types of growth hormone the one we're talking about is only one of the two main kinds that are bioactive um, there's another kind, a smaller, we're talking about the one that has a 22 kilodalton weight. There's a smaller one that's got a 20 kilodalton weight, which is produced pretty in large amounts, actually, almost equal to that of the others. So th- it could be that some people are wired. I haven't seen this distinguished because it just isn't sort of on the radar of a lot of uh, practitioners where to see, like, well, what would happen if we, te- if we administered growth hormone of the 20 kilodalton isoform in large amounts. Maybe there are some people who are more responsive to that, and maybe those people are the ones who typically produce more of that, or maybe they produce less because they're more sensitive to that because of their variations in the growth hormone receptor. So there's a, a growth, there's also uh, two different versions, at least that I know of, of the growth hormone receptor, and that same gene codes for the growth hormone binding protein. So if you're someone who has the right genes for the growth hormone receptor, you're going to have a greater growth response, at least in, uh, in dwarfs, if they give that. So there's an advantage there. Sure. Um, and also that's going to impact how growth hormone is bound. So just like we had sex hormone binding globulin, there's a, a growth hormone binding protein in the blood that binds up growth hormone. Gosh, who knows? Maybe there's an me- analogy, the analogous megalin type of thing too. I don't know. Um, we may figure that out. So, when you look at what growth hormone does, and even when they've given kind of large amounts in individuals who are not growing, so we're not talking about treating dwarfs who have, you know, a pituitary that's not putting out enough growth hormone. You don't see this tremendous increase in protein synthesis. There's a couple studies showing 
um, you know, more amino acid deposition, like the cross of forearm when they infuse and those sorts of things. But you don't see tremendous growth. You don't see additional muscle mass. For A lot of this has been in older folks. But you don't see these tremendous anabolic actions. Um, but there's always outliers, of course. Um, as we see with everything, there's always, there's always, and I've never seen anyone like look into the responder, non-responder issue with growth hormone, except in the context of growth of, of, uh, um, dwarfs. And even that's kind of a complicated and bizarre scenario because one thing that can happen, and this may apply as well to some people is that if you're injecting an exogenous growth hormone, let's say in very large amounts, so we're super physiological. It's kind of like, imagine, uh, a, I'll give an American analogy, imagine the wild, wild west and like every once in a while you have a few tumbleweeds like kind of rolling through. It's like, okay, you know, we don't want, those are fine. Our, your immune system is like, that's no big deal. It's just tumbleweeds. And then you look over and you see like literally thousands of them rolling through the town. Like that's a problem. We don't need that's blocking the streets. That's, you know, people can't walk. They can't get to where they're trying to go, you know women and children can't do what they want to do. So we need to take care of that. And the body will do that in the case of proteins that it sees like tumbleweeds that are in excess or aren't supposed to be there in that amount at least, or at all by producing antibodies. So you can produce antibodies to growth hormone. And at least theoretically, someone could be injecting growth hormone. Let's say that's not, it's a little misconfigured. Maybe it's even missing an amino acid or it's shaped differently because of how it was stored or, or how it was produced. And their immune system produces antibodies, which then are recognizing that as a foreign protein, attacking it, degrading it, and clearing it from the system before it can have its effect. Um, and I haven't, I have to go and look. I haven't seen where, if there's like outward effects that some would know. For instance, you'd inject the growth hormone, you'd see like a reddening around the area, some sort of a obvious immune response to know that. The only way I know is to actually do an antibody um, blood test. So back to whether that would matter, in the case of at least the literature I've seen with dwarfs, you would think, okay, well, some, if someone is a dwarf and they want to use a growth hormone uh, dwarf and they need to use growth hormone in order to get regular growth, it would be awful if they're producing antibodies, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. Well, to impact the growth. Antibody responsiveness or doesn't seem to impact uh, responsiveness to the growth hormone in the dwarfs that are given growth hormone to improve the growth. So it, it, it may be happening, but it may not be impacting how well the growth hormone works. But growth hormone does different things in growing individuals than it does yeah. in mature individuals too. Yeah. So some people may get a really anabolic response because of the variations, and some people may not because of bad, bad growth hormone or antibodies. One thing I think that happens um, for someone who at least is, is responsive to the, the other side of what growth hormone is good for, which is lipolysis, fat oxidation, is that, and I just had a question today, someone asked me on Instagram, you know, how, how what body fat percentage should I, you know, bulk up to? And, and I, I don't know anything about him, you know, I think you he, think he's a natural, I think he's newbie, um, relatively new to the sport, but, um, I, so that ultimately kind of comes down to what you feel comfortable with. So like some people who are, if you just could hypnotize them and say, I'm going to become the biggest, strongest human eclipse of a human being that I possibly can. I don't care if I get to 95% body fat, I'm going to get as large as humanly possible. Then I'll die down. If it has to be 10 years later, that's fine. 
Some people could do that. And I, those are like just, they're just animals. They probably don't want to date. They don't care about having a family or you know, those sorts of things. I'm being somewhat facetious here. But then other people are like, if they get above, you know, 12%, they start to feel chubby and they don't want to buy new pants, et cetera. So I think one thing that can help people um, in terms of gaining is if, if they are um, sort of uh, restrained in their growth by how much they can eat, et cetera, by body fat, then growth hormone means they're going to make cleaner gains, leaner gains, so to speak. Yeah. And they will tend to gain better. They feel like, well, shit, I'm, this growth hormone is keeping me nice and lean. I can now eat the food I need to make the gains. And the growth hormone, you know, it probably isn't hurting as far as muscle mass. Yeah. Plus, its its main effect on protein metabolism seems to be with connective tissue. Okay. So people like to talk about it, looking into injuries yeah. and those sorts of things. It has has an effect on cartilage and those sorts of things, which makes sense when you think about it as as it having its impact that it does during growth and development. Yeah, and, and so I, I, yes, gu- I guess you could say that also with it helping with appetite. Someone like myself, I'm six foot three and I'm just a natural ectomorph, like. In, a, in an off-season period, trying to go above 5,800 calories and just cannot put on weight, that would be something that could, could help. But I've never personally used it uh, to give my um, quote-unquote experience with it or, or whatever. But from what it sounds like, it might help the ability to, one, well, your appetite, but two, at the same time, keep you somewhat relatively leaner than if you perhaps didn't have it. Is that... Am I on the right that's lane, the, That's the main thing I'm thinking is that someone who's like, who would normally stop um, when they reach some, they would gain 10 pounds and normally they'd get five pounds of muscle and five pounds of fat. And they'd be like, okay, those five pounds of fat are too much. And then they would diet back down again and, and reverse direction. In this case, they can gain 10 pounds and only three pounds of that is fat yeah. because the growth hormone has kept them leaner. So they keep going until they get to 12, 13, 14, 15 pounds. Then they have those five pounds of fat, and then they might reverse direction. I have heard some people say it helps with appetite somewhat. I mean, much much more renowned for that are the growth hormone secretagogue peptides, the ghrelin analogs, yeah. like GHRP6, for instance, will make people ravenous. Yeah. So that's a that's a whole different deal. It was. So, it was a question I actually asked you. Um, I had a client last year. I didn't. I I, I knew a little bit about them, but I never used them. A client of mine last year wanted to use them. I didn't know much about it, researched it, he, he went with it. His appetite, like he was just always hungry. But mm-hmm. it, it must have been some bunk stuff because his hands were starting getting a lot sore and whatnot. But then when I spoke to yourself, I think we were speaking about just like the half-life or its uh, active availability of what it does after a few dosages. It went from, I think you showed me a graph and it just came right mm-hmm. down. I was like, that's something that I'm personally never going to use then because it seems inferior to perhaps exchange growth hormone. What, what was your thoughts? Was he using MK677? Yeah, he was. That's why I specifically asked you about MK677. Okay, yeah, because I was thinking of like the growth hormone security got the GHRPs. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. no, no, it's okay. Like that, they're, they're all good topics. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting one because the studies with that have used daily dosage. And I, I mean, I probably did show you that, show you that, that, um, that those data that shows you get a nice growth hormone release in the first you know couple days of dosing, but there's a desensitization. There's an adaptation that happens pretty rapidly, so the growth hormone isn't doesn't response isn't much. IGF one levels will stay elevated, 
So okay. growth hormone decreases IG, causes the release of IGF-1 in the liver, and that will stay elevated at least in the long-term studies. But I haven't seen anyone try to do like an every other day scenario with the MK-676. Okay. Yeah, that's that's something that perhaps someone could trial, perhaps. Someone I have heard from a couple people who did that who felt it helped. Oh, okay. I, I, I came, I've done a couple people ask about MK67 a lot. I've done I a couple podcasts I, talked I, about it. I think it's relatively cheap to get and very accessible. Well, it is here in the UK, um, mm. as far as I'm aware, and um, I'm not too sure. I mean, I, I don't know much on it, hence why I thought we would, we'd have a chat about it. But I, I'm well aware of time. And I know you're a busy man, and I want to. Oh, it's good. Uh, this I, is part of my mission, man. We can keep going if you like. No good, problem at all. Good. That's awesome, then. Yeah. So, um, one this sort of very taboo subject in the industry, but it's becoming increasingly popular within the UK anyway, is women perhaps using anabolics. Now, whether that you know people agree with that, disagree with that, we're not naive to here in the UK that it does happen. But I feel that there's some women out there that are being told to take X, Y, and Z, this, this, that, and the next thing without really any context of what it perhaps physiologically could do. So I thought it would be a great opportunity for, you know, would you be able to give the listeners an idea of what sort of effects could perhaps be seen in a female through anabolic usage um, of whatever compound, let's say it was testosterone or let's say it was a primobolin or a a trenbolone, which is a no-no, but... It happens. Yeah. It, it happens. So I just thought, in regards from a pharmacological perspective, physiological perspective, what would one perhaps see within those individuals? And, and yeah, so yeah, this is a it's, a it's a kind of a crazy topic, and it's it's one like you, they can't be spoken about too much, really, because things are just sure. out of control. I heard some some a couple guys talking about why there aren't more women podcasts. For, with women that are high-level competitors in the, in the ranks where in the non-natural organizations like the IFBB, the NPC over here, and what have you. And part of what they said was that they would come under such fire because they would be talking about using androgens. Yeah. And it would just, it would, it's such a taboo thing, although it's done so much. And some of them, a good number of the competitors who've been doing this for quite a long time, it's obvious what they've done to someone who's in the know because they've experienced the voice changes. So, and that, that can be just a, really a difficult thing. I've had some friends who've experienced that as well when the voice changes and for instance, you can't be understood on the phone or they don't, someone doesn't believe, you know, they say, this is my name is Julie. And they're like, is it Julie or Jules? I don't, I can't <laughs> tell. And, I, and, yeah. it, I, and it's sort of like funny, funny, but for that, for that person, that's not that's not a good thing. It can sure. it can create all sorts of disruption in their lo- in their professional life and their personal life. So um, so that's it's funny. I think I really think I started thinking about it. even just one of the main typically irreversible effects. Although I I do believe there are some at least in Japan there's some surgeons that will do some some uh, laryngeal surgery in order to sort of change the the vocal cords back to a more feminine state, but is that 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 may be one of the reasons why you don't see podcast we don't hear podcasts is because just there would be so much you can imagine the way people troll now online yeah. what would happen if women did that I just, I hate that but it's I think it's the case so so anyway I, I intentionally introduced that notion of like the three to ten milligrams of testosterone a day being 
what your typical male produces. It's a bit a bit higher during during puberty, but biologically speaking, the main the sex sex chromosomes are the main things that differentiate genetically men versus women. Obviously, all the other variations that make us all different as individuals, but until the state and still puberty, if you look at, for instance, you know, the physical performance statistics, body fat and body composition statistics, boys and girls pre puberty are pretty much the same. And then the genetic programming kicks in and you get the androgen being androgen being produced in boys, estrogens in, in women, and then there's a divergence and body composition changes. But note what amount of androgens we're talking about. We're talking about like, you know, we're not talking about 200 grams a day or 100 grams a day or even 50 grams a day. We're talking about like on the order of like 10 grams a day. I'm sorry, 10 milligrams a day. I misspoke there. Milligrams. So relate that back now to what a, a typical competitor might use as a minimal dose. Let's say they want to use five milligrams of anabar. So, in the anavar and, and testosterone are not equivalent, obviously. Um, and anavar is like, okay, it doesn't bind the androgen receptor, what have you. But um, that's still five milligrams of, of an androgen. And I I know women who are just like, who just stay on ten or twenty milligrams all the time. Wow. Um, and they and they with disruptive me- disrupted menstrual cycles, et cetera. Basically, they are amenorrheic. But if you think about that in the context of the amount of androgen that are produced during puberty and that differentiate men versus women, we're talking about on that, you know, somewhere around that 10 milligram level. Yeah. That's the kind of doses that women are taking. So if you wanted to, and I don't know exactly, I think there are probably different schools of thought. But if you're someone is doing a sex change situation scenario where, where they're, where they're doing this hormonally as well as surgically, um, they're basically looking to re- reproduce if it's from a female to male, male levels of androgens. Yeah. So a typical dose that many females might use, and especially the ones that I think the coaches you were talking about have been quote unquote prescribing are literally sex change level um, doses of androgens. Yeah. So you, you almost could say, so well, I could, I'm expecting basically if I continue this, you know, let's say, uh, you know, it's oh, just for two months, you know, twice a year, four months, and I do this for five years, there's 20 months over the course of five years, a person may have been on sex change level androgen therapy during their pre-contest cycles. Yeah. Which is crazy. How long is puberty? Two or three years, yeah. you know? Yeah. So you kind of add that up. It's like it, it, over the course of time, there's a slippery slope that can occur with all those things that are, that are um, part and parcel of sexual differentiation. So the voice change, hirsutism, the hair growth, um, of course, menstrual cycles will become disrupted. There's a lot of variability there. I've, I had a, a friend who, I mean, she was a high-level competitor using hefty, hefty doses, stuff that she would never have done once she was in the nose. She was she trained at an all-guys gym, right? And got strong as shit. And they said they almost kind of experimented on her, and she was okay with it. She doesn't have like any major regrets. She's all good now. Her health is great. Well, she had. She had some. She beat herself to shit with her joints, but that was partly because of what she did as a job. Yeah. But um, and she would retain her menstrual cycle until like the show day. Wow. Uh, on like on higher levels than than what TRT would be in total. Damn, that's crazy. 
It was me. Yeah, she said it was awful because sometimes she would literally start to getting getting premenstrual water when she's supposed to be drying out to get on stage. Yeah. So she's an example of someone who you know was really had a really robust endocrine system. Um, and but some women do not. You know, restoration of normal menstrual cycle may not happen um, uh, for a long for for actually for years. Yeah. Um, I've had friends, female friends, who've gone through that as well, and it'll leave them with bottomed out progesterone levels. For instance, the whole system sort of says, "Okay, it just it just gets it just gets shut down to a certain degree." You see in um, in uh, uh, in andropause, many men who need hormone replacement, and you see this typically in male steroid users, they will not have the gonadotrophin levels. So they'll have a hypogonadotrophic. Um, hypogonadism, which is just a wordy way of saying that those the signal from the brain to turn the on the tell the testes to produce testosterone is low. Yeah. So the whole system is kind of shut down, so it's not regulating itself. So the same thing can happen in women. Yeah. So the thing that is is hard to know, and unfortunately you don't want to know the hard way, so to speak, is that some of the effects can be reversible and some are not. So, like the voice changes can can change, and they can come back and forth. Yeah. And sometimes they'll be permanent. Um, like the like the, the reason why men have an Adam's apple is this laryngeal prominence here. The Adam's apple is highly antigen receptor, and that cartilage and the connective tissue there, where the vocal cords are, is highly antigen receptive, and that's yeah. why the voice changes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a very it's as a species, it's a very kind of smart way to differentiate men and women the voices are almost you would never like mistake a woman's voice for a man's voice or vice versa except maybe you know one in a ten thousand times something like that it's very yeah. odd yeah. because the energies change that so those things are, are sort of permanent changes that can never come back so have the side effects of disrupted menstrual menstrual flow facial hair once those genes get turned on they can stay turned on yeah um and never and never come back. Even if like a lot of women will try to, they will see that when they when they if they come off, and they if they restore um, menstrual cycles, meaning that they restore their estrogen. A lot of a lot of this can literally be not so much the androgen actions, but the combination of the androgenic actions and the lack of estrogen as well. Yeah. So, for instance. Um, Men, and a lot of times women who go through menopause will get, get male frontal pattern baldness. Okay. Yeah. So those, yeah. the literally women will, will, will use, um, uh, what's the, the topical, um, Rogaine types of products to help with that to some degree because the balance of antigens, estrogens is thrown off because the estrogens are, they're devoid of estrogens. Yeah. After they're they've gone through menopause, I, I think so, I think with based on that and then all you've said from from all this episode, it's very clear that anything is all to do with inter individuality response really, and yeah. you'll never really know until you speak to one person, then a different person, and then perhaps yourself on on what happens. And if there's anything to take home from that. Um, along with you know more physiological and pharmacological understanding of these drugs, I hope that people will take that. But for anyone out there listening who, you know, they think you're a stand-up guy, they think you're a swell guy, they want to know more about you, they want to follow you, 
they want to buy your book, they want your, your autograph. Could you let the listeners know uh, how they can get in contact with you or whereabouts they can, sorry? One thing first before I, before I give that wrap up, it's, it's sure. that what you said is really important and I'm going to tie this to how you sort of introduce the topic with women is that a cookie cutter, probably the worst, most, I would say most dangerous, so to speak, in terms of side effects, type of cookie cutter prescription you can get from a coach would be a guy who, or it could be a woman, but I would, it's typically men from what I've seen, who just gives a cookie cutter antigen prescription to a female competitor without thinking, okay, she wants to do this, like this is her call, um, it's working together. And it's, it's, let's say it takes, I don't know, two months to ease into something like that. If a woman has the side, she can do that. And I'm all for people doing whatever they want to do is not harming others. But it's not a bad idea like to maybe take two months and ease in and make sure you don't have a compound that's different than the one you thought you had, for instance, or find out that you're a super responder and you don't need to start with 10 milligrams because five milligrams starts to give you voice changes. Yeah. So you can do two and a half or what have you. Spend two months doing that and ease your way in um, because that that's the way to prevent those changes from from becoming permanent is to, is to, is to not like literally rush into the room not knowing what's in there and it could be a, it could be totally on fire and then you get you get burnt to death yeah maybe open crack the door say oh yeah it's kind of warm in there I can open that up a little bit that's better for me so that's I think a, the important like kind of bottom line thing is if anyone just says use this and it's not like very very small doses like even the use this thing is too much it's like what would you think about this go educate yourself please yeah. and we'll talk about it um, I would be a little bit suspect of that person. So totally, um, you can find me drscottstevenson.com, fortitudetraining.net, and uh, my the book that I had there at the seminar too. My 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 brain dump book is the Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book. Yeah, byobbcoach.com. Awesome. And then fortitude training on Instagram as well with an underscore between the words. Fantastic. Now, I think that the listeners will have a lot of uh, brain candy or golden nuggets, as, as you'd call it. Um, and how I tend to end these episodes is with myself saying, give it the beans. But I wondered that if there was a, a message to end on. So for Vaughn and Scott, give it the beans, baby. Uh,